You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Find Your Voice. My name is Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast we started ahead of the 2022 federal election to discuss policy issues affecting Goldstein and Australia more broadly. It's great to have you with us today. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung and Bunwarung peoples of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present on unceded Aboriginal land and in a very important year for our country in the lead up to the voice referendum. Let's just say up front, we're in a housing crisis that has been a long time coming. We can debate all the reasons. Is it because of a lack of national strategy or valuing housing as an asset rather than a need? Regardless, we've arrived at this point. So the question is, what can we do about it? Today, we have a panel who are all involved in working to meet the need and to increase the supply of homes, short, medium and long term. With current demand already at diabolical levels and projected demand for social and affordable housing to only increase in the years ahead, issues of cost and supply of housing, how to fund, plan and deliver affordability, the issues are complex. And the consequences if we don't tackle this are huge. It's at the heart of Australia's overall prosperity and wellbeing. Now, this can't be solved by government alone, even with a new government reform package currently stuck in the Senate and a housing accord to work with states and others to build a million homes. It is far bigger than government. So today, we have three panellists to discuss the way forward. Mary Delahunty is the founder of Seven Advisory. Mary provides an institutional and international investor perspective and advises companies on social and affordable housing and other housing investments. Robert Pradlin is the founder and director of Housing for All Australians. Rob helps to provide a property developer and now not-for-profit perspective. He's been active in the property industry for more than 35 years, most recently as general manager of Fraser's Property Australia. And since leaving the corporate world, he's established Housing All Australians as a private sector initiative to help address Australia's housing crisis. And Ludwina Daktovich, the CEO of the Room Exchange. Ludwina brings an on-the-ground perspective of how to help meet this challenge and immediate need. She set up the Room Exchange, Australia's first verified house sharing platform. Thank you so much to the three of you for joining us on Find Your Voice. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks, Zoe. Ludwina, I'll start with you. Thank you so much for being here today. There is a lot to talk about. Uh, But let's just begin with you explaining what the Room Exchange is and how did you see it as a way that you could help contribute to resolving some of the needs in the community? Thank you. So we're in our sixth year. I founded the company in uh, the end of 2016. We're Australia's first and only verified house sharing platform. What I mean by that is we made a decision that every user, whether you're a homeowner with a room to rent or a renter looking for a room, uh, you need to be verified to prove that you are who you say you are. We think it's important that we create a community where everybody is safe and we have set up a, a framework of expectation from the get-go. There's over 13 million unused bare bedrooms in 10 million homes across Australia and we see that as existing housing stock and it's accessible and affordable. Right now, which is an interesting time for us, it's the first time we've seen a convergence of need of both sides of the market. 
where homeowners have experienced you know, 12 interest rate hikes in the last year, which can sometimes equate to around $1,000 a month, depending on the size of the mortgage, where their spare bedroom is actually worth around that much in rent. And then we have, as you've just said, the worst rental crisis that we've ever had with some regions can have, you know, less than 1% um, vacancy rate. So it's housing stock that's sitting there right now in homes that could deal with the additional income. We have um, a unique model as well where we call rent offset. So you can choose rent or you can choose rent offset. The rent offset means that you can offset part or all of your rent by re- requesting additional help around the house, such as cooking, cleaning, childcare, or maybe even, you know, companionship for elderly people. So we solve a number of social issues, uh, housing issues, economic issues. And it's interesting that, you know, that where the market is right now, we are definitely primed to help support it, but we have been building it for quite some time now. So we're really happy to be able to support the market in this way. And what have you seen in recent times as the housing crisis has become more and more evident? Is that reflected in the number of people who are interacting with you? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. We have um, a much faster pace of people signing up to our platform, also faster pace of completing profiles and connecting with other users. It's a very different feeling right now where there's a need that needs to be resolved very quickly, whereas pre-COVID it was more about, I'm curious about this, let's just kind of see how it goes and if it's for me. But now it's like people are actually actively looking. We, we notice this in our um, analytics when we're looking for what people are searching for. They're act- actively looking for alternative models because they can't get into the rental market, let alone be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. So this is a way that um, enables that to happen. I'm, I'm actually an active user. I've, I have two housemates in my house because my adult children have left home and we have quite a large house meet up on the downside. And so I have an international student living with me and I have someone who's moved over from Canberra who, interestingly, even though he owns his own property in Canberra, could not get a rental property in Melbourne because he doesn't have a rental history. So there's a lot of issues around the rental market, not just the fact that there's not enough supply, but there's also some massive issues that are causing people to not able to be able to access it. And just before I move on to the others, Ludwina, can you just take us through what actually triggered this for you? How, how did you come to this? A lightning bolt of an idea to set up for an exchange. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I'm a bit of an oddball. I left school at 15, left time at 16, and I've been an entrepreneur all my life. So I'm 56 now. So I, I tend to be able to see things in the future, see patterns and trends that are emerging. But this particular business, when I founded it, my oldest son had left home and I did what most, you know, empty nester mums, I hate that t- term, but anyway, I cried for a year and and I said to him, I just started seeing that room as a cost center. And I said, hey, you know, kid, come and get your stuff. It's time I did something with the room. And and it initially began with my friends of my daughters who were traveling and they unlimited budget. And so we said, well, look, why don't you come and stay with us and we'll feed and house you. And my husband and I both run businesses from home. We're very busy. So that was really helpful. So we got to maximize our spare room in a way that got us household help. And we're able to help people at the same time. And then after about four years of living that way, I had... Three friends of mine asked me, it's a great idea where I can find someone. And at that point, I start growing antennas out of my head. It's like, oh, there might be something here. And so then I did some research and the market was, yeah, I think it could, yeah, I think it could work. And um, so it's not a completely new model, you know, post-World Wars, you know, women who'd lost their husbands would, you know, open up their spare rooms and, you know, they used to call it borders. 
but what we've done is just utilise technology to give comfort to homeowners to be able to share their room. So they don't buy a house with the idea of, oh, I'm going to rent a room or become a house sharer. So they're very insecure about it. And so we provide resources. Um, our platform's free to use, but we provide premium services to help them. But all of that's evolved over time. And when COVID happened, obviously, we had to shut our doors because no one's opening up the front doors when, you know, everyone's told to stay inside. And so we used that time to pivot the company. And we thought, well, how can we move the model along a little bit more to, so that we can grow on what's going to happen post-COVID? And I made predictions that, you know, obviously, all the money that the government had provided us during COVID is going to have to get paid back somehow, which inflation could cause inflation rises and cost of living, et cetera. So I thought, let's bring rent into the model and give people the choice to rent or we now call it rent offset and mm. um and then that way they have the power to be able to choose how to utilize that asset in the house it's very difficult now to get um part-time childcare at home it's incredibly expensive it's difficult to get cleaners or gardeners and those kind of like ad hoc um at home help that we used to be able to just hire so this way you can find somebody who's got a particular skill set is happy to utilize that skill if you want and say okay well if you um, you know, did the four hour clean on Saturday instead of us doing it, we'll have you rent. You know, so mm. you can negotiate that and we have a rent offset calculator on the website to help users to work out that model for themselves and we have services like helping them to articulate the house share agreement, how to articulate the model for them, how to work out their terms of the house sharing arrangement, etc. So all of that's there if they want it, but if they're happy to do it on their own, we even pay for the verification. You can mm. jump on the website and just register, create your profile, get verified and start connecting with people. And, you know, there's lots of different organisations and councils and government that's reaching out to us now and saying, hey, how can your technology actually help us solve our, our problems, housing problems in our local area? It's interesting, the amount of foresight that you showed, Ludwina. It sounds like you might have a role on the Reserve Bank board. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll move on to you, Rob, and it would be great if you could just begin by explaining what is Housing All Australians and how did you come to the point of setting it up and, and what are you trying to deliver there? Sure, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, housing All Australians is a private sector initiative looking at housing and its connection to homelessness through an economic lens. And it's all by volunteer business people that actually care about our country. Because as you said earlier, those words echo... I'm not sure where they come from. They're exactly the same thing that we've been saying. This is too big for government to solve. This is a community problem, and we have to do it collaboratively together. And just going back to your question of why it started, I've got so many little stories, but I'm, in, I'm a developer. I'm a capitalist. But it doesn't mean we don't care about vulnerable people. And while I was selling apartments, land, and housing to the private sector that could afford it, like most Australians, I assumed that governments were looking out for vulnerable people, and they weren't. And the more I delved into it, the more I learned about what I didn't know, I was actually flabbergasted. You know, when women over 55 are the fastest growing cohort of homeless in Australia, as a man, I was ashamed. How do we let these things happen in our country? But the genesis of the whole Housing All Australians, uh, Zoe, was I was having a cup of coffee with my daughter into Grave Street, opposite Flinders Street Station. And a few days ago on the news, there was a story about how the Grand Hall had been empty for over 10 years. And this homeless person came up and asked us for some money for a bed for that night. And we gave him some coins, but it started a conversation. And I said to my daughter, I said, Demi, the, the Flinders Street Station is Melbourne's icon. It's been empty for over 10 years. And look what's sleeping below it. People are sleeping well. Yeah. 
And I said, I wonder how many buildings in Melbourne are empty. And then I started working with Launch Housing in the City of Melbourne and we didn't find one or didn't pursue one, but I got a phone call one day from the City of Melbourne saying the ABC's heard of the idea and they like it. So I was on the ABC News, I was on Neil Mitchell, and then I started getting phone calls from very wealthy families all the way through to a homeless guy that found me on LinkedIn. And he said, I'm one of the great unwashed. Thank you for trying. But the main message that came out of that, everyone said, we know we've got a problem. Just tell us what you want us to do. So everyone is engaged in this issue. It is intimidating because of the scale. People still get intimidated walking past homeless people, but sometimes all they want is the interaction. But getting back to a point I think you said earlier in the introduction, there was a report done for the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation called NIFIC by Chris Leptos in 2022. Government actuaries quantified the size of the problem at $290 billion. Why aren't we working out a strategy to hit that target over the next 20 to 30 years, given that number was established by government, not by politicians, by actuaries? I'm just, part of our model is I'm over waiting for government. This has to be led by the private sector. We have to shape a national conversation, not only the social issues around this, but the economic implications for our country. We did an economic report last year in June 2022 that said if we let government continue doing what they are doing, in 2032, which is an investment horizon targeted at the super funds, by 2032, the additional cost to a trade state to Australian taxpayers in today dollars is $25 billion per annum. And my concern as a father, we won't be able to afford it in 2023. So what happens then? Our Australian values get watered down. We are heading for a lose-lose scenario. Rob, I'm going to come back to you in a moment for some nuts and bolts around housing all Australians, but I want to get Mary Delahunty into the conversation. Mary, with your background and exposure to Australian and international investments by institutions like super funds, mm. can you explain how you see those large institutional investors being part of the solution here? Yes, thanks, Zoe. Happy to give it a shot. Although, as um, both Rob and Ludwina have pointed out, it's a complex area in housing. And I think um, I, I maybe disagree that the, that we need to let the private sector do it all. I think it's it's so complex and such a wicked problem that it takes everyone um, and government included. In fact, they're a crucial part. Investors, though, can play an enormous role to really supercharge um the money flow and the capital flow into what we consider to be a supply side issue. And I think it's maybe worth pausing on that as a concept. First, it sounds terribly um, economical and inhuman, but to understand housing as a supply side issue is crucial to be able to understand where we focus our efforts to solve it. I think for too long we've had and been tempted and distracted by demand side solutions. And by that I mean solutions to housing that expect the individual to be able to perhaps draw upon their savings or expect the individual to be able to um, work within their means to afford houses that are simply out of their reach. We have constructed, I think, in this country um, houses not so much as homes but as an asset class 
And so we're, we're pretty good at, at hoarding them and, and at betting on them and at understanding how we um, can use them to further our own wealth, but that's only going to be um, relevant for some people. It's only attainable for some people. And so we need to recast our minds and see housing as a human right instead and think about the economic uplift that everyone can have with a roof over their head. And so then you stop focusing on individual efforts, demand side, and start focusing on system efforts, which is supply side. So we need to get more houses into the system. And so that comes to, though, not just um, constructing, uh, you know, a heap of apartments and having them um, available on Airbnb for investors, that comes to being quite intentional about the kind of houses that we need to build and who is getting them. So we want to supercharge through um, investment, which big capital can do. And by big capital, I mean the institutions, super funds, et cetera. But there are constraints around the way in which they can use their money and they those constraints are right and proper because it's not super funds' money, it's working people's money. Um, and super, to take that as an example, is a, is a social movement in and of itself. It was supposed to deliver dignity and retirement to everyone, not just the lucky few. And so... We really can't have super funds acting philanthropically because then they're taking with one hand and giving with the other and they're hurting the same people that the housing crisis is currently hurting. So we need to have them in a proper investment footing with the fundamentals right and the investment opportunity right. And that means that whilst we need to act with um, the private market, we also need government intervention in what is a, a genuine social crisis. And we see it as a social crisis if we start to take the object out and put the subject back in, so put the human in it and think about what in our country, um, what it might look like if everyone had a roof instead of what it might look like if everyone could just sort of consume these assets, which I think is what we've been doing so far. Yeah. So, yeah, complex but, but but you know, worthwhile having a go at. Well, and we have to, really. It's not a mm. choice. Uh, I think, I mean, my view very much is that government needs to be involved i think the question that we're all grappling with is how and what is the the best approach some of the things that you're alluding to there go to particular kinds of regulation or facilitation um, around how capital is released and those sorts of Mm. things i guess what about the um housing Future Fund, which is currently stuck in the Senate, which is to do with you know, government directly investing in housing, and obviously state government uh, is a piece of that too. How do you see that jigsaw puzzle sort of fitting together in terms of the government direct investment in, in housing and then the other sort of regulatory aspects that you're talking about? I think it's a very worthy um, first step and it and I would dearly love to see that um, piece of legislation, even though it's got some prickles, to be passed through the Senate as a starting point. The federal government for a long time hasn't had um, a genuine approach to housing and it, because it is, it, it is largely a state um, and local government issue. And one of the great challenges about the housing crisis is the complexity of those um, different layers of government. So for the federal government to take a, a, a genuine step into this space is welcome. It, it will make a difference because it does get capital flowing. It's not everything. And the private, um, private market, private capital in, in super funds, et cetera, needs to play a role. 
but it can be aided by um, the current legislation or the, the bill. And private developers um, have to play a role as well. So we can't really be um, um, snobbish about who it is that um, owns the properties in the end. We need to be agnostic about who's delivering it and be quite intentional about the outcome and who's getting the homes. So this that piece of legislation, that goes some way to doing that. In the past, um, NIFIC, as Rob alluded to, is a federal government um, invention and, and in, exists at a federal level, but it's a bond aggregator, so it's a, it's a debt product. Private capital has, has played a role in that, as in um, super funds have bought the debt, um, bought the bonds so that the NIFIC through its facilities may then on lend to community housing providers. That's not government money. That's private money through a government facility to um, community housing providers with a government guarantee. So whilst there was a lot of talk, for, I think, from the previous government about all the good things NIFIC was doing, that wasn't government money. That was a government facility. Uh, it's, I think, time for some federal money to flow. And while there may be arguments about how this is not enough, it's certainly more than it was and it's enough to begin. Yeah, I think you and I are on the same page on that. Just for the record, I did vote in favour of the package to go through the House, much as I do have some reservations about it that I've been in continuing discussions with the Minister on. Uh, but as anyone who's reading the papers would know, it's still stuck in the Senate. Rob, I'll come back to you on Housing All Australians. Can you just give us a pricey for the audience of exactly what Housing All Australians is? What, what do you do? How does it work? Sure. And before I do that, I just want to clarify, because I, I agree everything with what Mary said, by the way. And when I said private sector, I include our, our super funds in that. And it really is the voice of the private sector, because I've attended so many homeless conferences with the community housing providers, fascinating conferences, great speakers. And I stand up and say, who's here from the private sector? It's me. So all I'm saying by the private sector, we have to lend our voice. And you said the voice earlier, Zoe to change the national conversation to housing being fundamental infrastructure for a prosperous country. But getting back to your question, Housing All Australians, you heard about how it was formed, and then I, we developed a one-page strategy because I like simple things. First one is, what is our short-term response? Because we've got people sleeping in the streets. Well, the idea about using empty buildings that are sitting vacant, waiting for the next development cycle, was one of those pillars. And on that um, ABC that I was mentioned that I mentioned earlier, someone that I know came up and said, Rob, I'm on a board of Casper Care in South Melbourne. We've just built a new aged care facility and the old one of 52 rooms are sitting empty. We feel a bit guilty. Is this something you want to try and do? So out of the 52-bed facility, with the help of Metricon, um, Crown Plaza Hotel, uh, Metricon subcontractors, we refurbished 32 rooms of those 52 and gave it to the YWCA to manage for homeless women. In four years, they helped 125 women stabilise their lives for free. And we're now doing the other 20 rooms at South Melbourne, and Hanson Yunkin, the builder, is doing it free. So you mentioned earlier, Sandringham Mercy Hospital, I was on a panel with the chair of Mercy Hospital. She heard what I had to say. Two, 12 months later, we're now brokering a five-year lease for a dollar for an old convent that's sitting on land that they looking to expand the hospital for, for $1. And they bought it off the sisters after the sisters just spent $2 million refurbishing it. We're now looking to house a charity called Bridget. 
because they look after young kids. Mm. We're doing 25, another 25 rooms in South Melbourne, or empty. We're doing another 12 rooms for Bridget in St Kilda, or empty. There are thousands of empty buildings as short-term shelter. They are not a solution. But the private sector is ready to respond pro bono to help vulnerable people. The mm. second pillar was an economic. We need to get facts. Start to put this in as an economic issue for our country as well as a social one. You've heard the first report we released last year. In two weeks, we're releasing a report on veterans housing. The long-term cost to Australia if we allow the 5,000 homeless veterans to continue to be homeless. Because the unintended consequences in physical and mental health, family violence, justice, policing, long-term welfare dependency, that's an economic cost that we as taxpayers have to pay in the longer term. The analogy I use, you have a, a flowing stream of uh, water, of, of river, and the Salvation Army, they're pulling people out of the river. We should be going upstream to stop them from jumping in, and that requires an investment. But let me quickly go on to third pillar quickly, which is employing our super funds, and they have to be employed in this sector. And the line I used to use, and this is not a reflection on super funds, it's a reflection on our financial system. But our super funds currently have billions of dollars investing what I say Donald Trump's Americans, and they've just started to get into housing in Australia. And the fourth pillar is an affordable housing model that we are working on with PEXA. They are a public company. They're, um, they're a COAG initiative that's now gone into a $2.5 billion company. PEX is working with us to create a digital register to monitor affordable housing across the country to unlock private sector capital. And that will be done by the end of this year. As a developer, that'll tick all the boxes of the development community in terms of uh, wanting to manage the process themselves. It gets locked on the title for the 30 to 40 year commitment and local government can monitor it for that period of time in a management-like way because it's all done digitally. This is what we're doing with private sector innovation because with all frankness, governments never innovate. They just run and catch up after the markets run away from them. And we have to innovate with that private sector view of the world with value-aligned corporates. And I've got to tell you, there's a lot out there. CSR mm. supplying plaster for us in 14 dwellings that we're building in Perth for free. We've got uh, Quest Apartment Hotels that says, any furniture you want in these empty buildings will supply for free. We've got Hanson Yanka, we've got the Better Living Group, even the Victorian government now, through the Developed Facilitation Unit, is now fast-tracking our planning permits. First in the country, I presented to the New South Wales Inquiry to cut red tape to actually make empty, empty buildings available several years ago. We are still waiting. The papers, the recommendations are there, but there's no action. We are tired of waiting for it. People want to see their fellow citizens with a roof over their head. And we have to do it because in government, you mentioned have before, and I, like you, I think it should go through. But let's be realistic. Half a million dollars, um, half a billion dollars a year is, is a thousand houses. That doesn't scratch the surface. So we have to look at innovative ways to unlock a whole range of things so we can look forward to maybe setting it a start of something that will be our futures, our children's future, where they won't have the economic issue because otherwise our country is going to change and change significantly. I have been to the uh, project that you're 
involved in in St Kilda with Bridget and it's fascinating to see that come to life and I'm very excited about the convent development in Sandringham which is obviously in my electorate of Goldstein as well. Ludwina, I want to come back to you to just talk about who your target audience is. I'm interested in what kinds of people firstly have a room available uh, that they see fit to enter into this process with and also who's looking, who's who's entering those rooms? It's a very interesting question because it's shifted in the last 12 months. Before it was just the homes that, you know, had probably two spare bedrooms or more. Now it just seems to be anybody with a spare bedroom. And the ones with usually two bedrooms or more are the empty nesters and elderly. Um, and that will sort of push more sort of outer suburbs, but now we're getting a lot of inner city people signing up as well. The demographic is not really as much about whether, you know, what gender they are, what household makeup they are, stage of life they're at. It's just really about financial need and support right now. So if they've got the space, if they've got a spare room and they need either financial, um, additional finances or help at home, then they're signing up. And so, you know, it could be families, elderly people who, by the way, have got the most unused spare bedrooms in the country, you know, coupled to children have left home. So both of mine are left home. They're 30 and 28. And I agree a lot with what Robert was saying about, you know, I'm concerned about my kids and their future in terms of what housing is going to look like. In fact, I just want to throw this in here now because, Mary, some of your points were just brilliant. That if I, I have this saying, I haven't said it publicly yet, so I'm going to say it here. If anyone who's got a spare bedroom doesn't open it up and share it, we're going to see a very different Australia by the end of this year. Because the, you know, when you're talking to people that are on the grassroots of how difficult the rental market is here in Australia, I'm really worried. And I'm going to say that my husband and I decided to rent and we rent the house out that we own in Newport in Melbourne. So I'm a self-managed landlord, a homeowner and a renter. And at 56 years of age, I feel housing insecurity. And by that, what I mean by that is with everything that I've accumulated in my life, whether it's, you know, financial security, career credibility, the massive amount of media that I've had, all of that stuff, the, the, the success in business, I, why is it that I can still only get one year lease? Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are some things at the core of the rental market in Australia that are just unnecessarily creating housing insecurity. So, you know, on both sides of the market, when we look at who it is, there's a new kind of renter now and there's a new kind of house sharer and they're just people that have got a financial need. They've got a housing need. You know, what Mary said about, you know, we need to take the object, I had to write this down, we need to take the object out and put the subject back in. You know, when when did housing become a privilege and not a right? And when we look at another point that you made of, um, you know, majority, 75% or something of um, investment properties are owned by mum and dad investors who, by the way, and not professional service providers. So when they're, they're not buying the property to actually provide housing or to somebody else, they're buying it to improve their own wealth. Okay, I understand that. But at the end of the day, there's a dual responsibility. There's a responsibility there on the other end to be a, um, a responsible landlord as well when you're providing housing. Now, somebody, when I was interviewing recently, said, why is it my responsibility to pay the additional cost of the interest rate hike that the landlord getting what isn't that the risk that uh, an investor takes when they buy a property great point you know there's all of these things that are happening at the moment that are just really creating this devastating environment and you know if you look at middle class 
or what we call middle class, if they lost their jobs, they'd, they'd be homeless in two months. You know, we, we actually really need to start getting into this now. We cannot wait. I agree, the private sector's got to jump in. You know, we have resources that are available to us everywhere. We've got to start looking at this, at our neighbours as more of a community. People in this country, we're a community of people. And, you know, I remember my mum used to have this open, constant open door. You know, it was just like, who can I help in my community? Where's that gone? I mean, we take, we get to know our neighbours, but they won't come out and actually come back. You know, like there's something that's very different now. And we need to be opening up our front doors more, opening up our spaces, sharing them, finding the resources that are being wasted. And, you know, what you're doing, Robert, is amazing. It's like, I can't believe there's that many buildings that are sitting empty. To answer your question, mm-hmm. it's people with a need. Like it, and, you know, we, we are not here to solve the homeless. Um, issues where, but however, you know, how do people fall into that? They fall into that because they don't have access to affordable housing. So if we can get people at the, the point where they, you know, maybe just lost a job or maybe they're recently divorced or whatever the circumstance is that they require something and temporarily just to get themselves back up on their feet, this is an ideal situation before they, their mental health is deteriorated, before their financial situation is just so messed up that they're just incredibly stressed, you know, like it's, yeah. I, I appreciate your um, your point so much, Ludwina, and I just want to also make the point, having listened to you uh, or had a previous conversation with you about this, uh, that it a- actually adds something to your own life, uh, having someone living in your house. I think in a previous conversation that you and I had, uh, we, we talked about the fact that you sit around the dinner table and you have all sorts of different conversations yeah. um, than, than you would otherwise. So. It's a two-way street in terms of benefit. Mary, I want to come back to you um, be, just before I close off this conversation because it occurs to me that there's another piece here which is kind of an unpopular subject to talk about and that's tax mm. um, and how tax or the current tax system relates to property uh, mm. and the housing market. Do you have anything to offer on that point, the relevance of that and consideration of revisiting tax mm. arrangements. Well, you see the Victorian government's uh, stepped into that in the budget over mm. the last week or two and, and New South Wales is also moving in that direction as well. It is a thorny subject, isn't it? It's. <laughs> I think if we had a blank sheet of paper and we were designing a country and we all decided that housing was a human right, we probably wouldn't have uh, the tax system that we have in place now. Having said that, though, I don't think it's an insoluble mess and I think we can work within it. If we consider tax incentives to incentivise outcomes instead of just activity. And so let's take, um, for example, uh, negative gearing. You can take really any sort of developer incentives because there are a lot of them and I, I think Rob would agree with me, property developers are not exactly um, in hard times and never really have been. So there is a lot of um, public money that either flows to um, developers or buyers in the form of um, foregone tax or in the form of incentives more broadly. But what we haven't been able to be very articulate about is incentivising an outcome for those people. So we will for example, at a state level, give GST incentives for um, just simply the supply of housing. We probably need to think about giving incentives that 
um, are attached to an outcome of an affordable property, critical worker housing, properties that take people off the social housing waiting list. And think about our foregone tax revenue or our actual taxes going towards those sort of outcomes. And that's genuine reform. And that is not easy, but it is exactly what people, um, perhaps in your position and more broadly your colleagues, Zoe, should be staring down because it's really the only way to work the, the system that we have to deliver a different outcome than what's going on at the moment. And I absolutely love that we've got the giant brains of Ludwina and Robert and others doing the things that they are doing. But to go back to that Desmond Tutu quote that you mentioned, Robert, they are pulling people out of a river and those people should never have fallen in. And these are, these are you know, if you look at how housing is gendered in this country, these are women who are the working poor who have given up their part of their working life to raise, let's call them, other taxpayers. And so we owe them more than just, um, you know, incentives flowing the same way and hoping for a different outcome. We owe them tackling big issues like tax reform. And we can do it because we don't need to undo the current system. We just need it to incentivise outcomes, I think. What a great chat with the three of you. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Mary Delhunty is the founder of Seven Advisory. Robert Pradelin is the founder and director of Housing All Australians. And Ludwina Dautovic is the CEO of the Room Exchange, all joining us to talk about this thorny issue of housing, which in many ways is the zeitgeist of our time currently in Australia. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us on Find Your Voice. Thank you. with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. 